the choir master, according to the Gittit, the psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. May God add his blessing with the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come now and we pause as we give attention to your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. We would ask that you would give us ears to hear. Father, there's, uh, there's a lot going on in our world. There's a lot going on in our lives, and it's easy for our minds to wander. But we pray that your spirit would so accompany the preaching of your word this morning. Uh, that as we saw in Sunday school, that, Lord, uh, we would leave with a sense of your will in order that we would live wisely, that we could exercise and show wisdom and understanding and discernment in the midst of the days in which we live. Uh, Lord, we do pray this morning for the folks in our congregation who have had uh, surgery this past week. We pray for their recovery. We pray for their caregivers. And Father, we particularly this morning uh, want to pray for Deb Hegstrom. Uh, we, we know that she and John are watching, and so, uh, Father, please, uh, we, we want them to be aware of uh, not just our love and care and concern for them, but more importantly, your love and care and concern for them. So bless our time now, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wanted to be somewhere else? I suspect about Wednesday this week, Kyle Thomas will find himself saying, why did I agree to come to General Assembly? As he's sitting through four hours of meetings uh, with the committee that he has graciously agreed to serve on. Uh, by the way, just for a little context, Kyle is the one and only ruling elder from the Platte Valley Presbytery to ever attend General Assembly. So, be in prayer for them. Now, maybe uh, you've wanted to be somewhere else, not just geographically, but circumstantially, or maybe even existentially. Have you ever had this kind of conversation with yourself? I'm not sure how I got here. In fact, I'm not even sure where here is. But I'd love to just not be here. 
there is then a second question that we have to ask as we ponder our desire to be somewhere else. And it's this, is it worth trying to get back from wherever it is that I don't want to be? Yeah, I'm not where I want to be, but getting back to where I need to be sounds like it might be a lot of work. So what's the payoff? If I do the work, if I try to make the necessary changes, what will be the reward as a result? Psalm 84 is helpful to us as we think about those questions. The psalmist laments that he is not where he wants to be. Now, at first, this seems like a geographical issue. We're told in verse 2 that his soul longs, yes, it faints, for the courts of the Lord. He's far from where he wants to be, namely the temple in Jerusalem. But what seems like a geographical issue is actually a relational issue. The change in geography is a symptom of a deeper thing. We see that powerfully illustrated for us in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah chapter 7. So let me ask you, keep your finger in Psalm 84, but turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7. It can be found on page 768 and 769 in your pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 7, we want to look at verses 1 to 4, because here again, we're going to see attention given to the temple, but we're going to learn that the temple isn't really the issue. Jeremiah chapter 7 and the first half of Jeremiah chapter 8 record for us one of the most famous sermons in the Old Testament. It's uh, called the Temple Sermon, and it's Jeremiah's clarion call to Israel as he's begun his ministry that they need to repent and they need to turn away. It's not going to go well for Israel. They will not heed the word of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What the psalmist understands that Israel does not is that Psalm 84 is not a psalm about a place. Rather, it's a psalm about person. Psalm 84 reminds us of what is our big idea this morning. Blessed are those who are rightly related to the triune God. They forgot that in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah's day, they thought they could wander far from God and it would be okay because they had this place, the temple, the temple, the temple. They used it as a mantra. But they would not do the things that the psalmist spells out for us in Psalm 84 this morning. 
Now, as we think about this psalm, you'll see there in the outline there are three points. And those three points actually flow out of the fact that three times there is a pronouncement of blessedness made. The first one, as you see, is in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. The second one comes in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then finally, in verse 12, the psalmist uses it almost as a benediction. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now these three pronouncements of blessing also then go along with what is explicit in the first section, but are hints and allusions in the, in the second and third. This is a psalm that is Trinitarian. The psalmist is going to tell us not just about the Lord of hosts, not just about God the Father in the Trinitarian language, but he's also going to tell us about God the Spirit in the second section. And then in the third section, we will hear of the Anointed One, namely God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is triple blessing that goes along with the fact that this is a Trinitarian psalm. So first, dwell near the altar of the Father. Dwell near the altar of the Father. As we've been going through this particular section of Psalms, we've seen and we've been reminded, as one scholar reminded us, that this is a series of Psalms that are about destruction and desolation. In fact, just last week, we saw the psalmist praying that God would fill the faces of their enemies with shame, that they would be put to shame and dismayed forever, that they would perish in disgrace. The psalmist is not in a great place. And so in the midst of his despair, in the midst of the desolation, in the midst of the destruction, the psalmist's mind turns and he remembers when he was rightly related to the triune God. And in the Old Testament, being rightly related to God meant that according to the covenant, you got to dwell in the place that God had provided for you. So being rightly related relationally meant that you could be rightly related geographically. And now the psalmist says in verse 2, My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, let's understand what's going on in verse 2 tells us that it isn't just about the place. It's about the relationship. It's about the fact that when God's people would gather together in the temple, the promise that God made is that he himself would be there. He would be among them. And the psalmist says, God, I long to be in that place where gathered with your people we would cry, we would sing, and you would meet us there. Verse 3, then, seems out of place because we go from the gathered congregation of God's people to birds hanging out in the temple. And we go, what's going on here? 
Well, we need to there focus on the, the last two phrases in verse 3. At your altars, O Lord, o Lord of hosts, my King and my God. See, the psalmist is there alluding to a basic truth that the Bible reminds us of. If you think about what was in the temple, and if you think about or what was in the tabernacle of meeting, always in the center was the, 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 the ark, there was the mercy seat. And central to God's people gathering together was the giving of offerings on the altar. And the reason for that was because God made it abundantly clear to his people in the book of Leviticus through uh, the book of Deuteronomy that they can't just gather together uh, as they see fit. They can't just show up and go, well, you know, uh, God's this really great dude and he delivered us out of Egypt and isn't he wonderful and, you know, God's my boyfriend and it's fantastic and I'm, I'm just going to come and emote. No, they were reminded by the centrality and the presence of the altar that the only way sinful people can gather in the presence of a holy God is if atoning sacrifice is made for their sin. And so here's the psalmist saying, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God, but I can only do it because there are altars there. I can only do it, God, because when I come into your house, the altar is central. And so the sparrow finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. Paul's going to remind us later on that all of creation is groaning under the curse. So the impact, the influence of this offering for sin stretches and reaches to all of creation, not just God's people. And so he will say then, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Friends, if we are going to be rightly related to the God who created the universe, we can only do so because he has dealt finally, ultimately, and totally with our sin through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words of John the Baptist, the very beginning of John's Gospel, when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the psalmist can gather, the psalmist can dwell in the place where God dwells. Don't miss that. In verse 1, we are told how lovely is God's dwelling place. And in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. How do we dwell with God? It's only because of the atoning sacrifice made on the altar. It's only because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we do not draw near to the altar of God on our own. We do not come near to God because we're good enough, we're smart enough, and doggone it, people like us. No, we come to God through the altar. We come to God through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin, or we do not come at all. 
dwell near the altar of the Father. Secondly, find your strength in the living water of the Spirit. Find your strength in the living water of the Spirit. There's a second statement of blessing now. And the statement is for those whose strength is in God and whose heart are the highways to Zion. In other words, uh, these are people who both find their strength, but their hearts are also directed to the way of God. Beginning of the sermon, we talked about what was going on in Jeremiah's day and in the great temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7. And see, the problem was not what they were articulating with their lips. The problem what was going on in their hearts. They would not repent. They would not humble themselves. They would not stop doing all the things that they were doing that was causing the wrath of God to come upon them in the first place. It was not a head issue. It was not an issue in terms of what their lips confessed. But in their hearts were not highways to Zion. Now, in verse 6, we get this really interesting allusion, again, to geography, to a place, and we're going, what, what, what's going on? Uh, the Valley of Baca, a Baca tree was a, a scrubby little bush that uh, didn't have a, it was, it was considered a very arid dry, it was sort of like a tumbleweed uh, in Israel. So blessed are these people who can go through this dry, arid place, and yet they make it a springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now the illusion there is the illusion that Jenny read for us. That Christ is going to give the living water of the Spirit. That as we, as those who possess the Spirit, as we go through the Valley of Baca, we can make it a place of springs. The promise in the New Covenant that God makes in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37 is that He would take out their heart of stone and He would give them a heart of flesh. In other words, he, through the Spirit, He was going to take out hearts who were not highways to Zion. And instead, give them hearts that were highways to Zion. So this idea of finding our strength in God, the idea of having a heart that is inclined to God, and the idea of this spring of living water that is welling up within us, going then from strength to strength, or as Paul says, from victory to victory, it's present only because of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's more than what the psalmist says. But as we think about what the Bible teaches as a whole, and as we understand that this is about being rightly related to God, and our God is three in one, then we understand that this illusion points us to the spirit that is yet to come, the spirit is go who is going to accompany the new covenant that God makes with his people. And so we must find our strength in the living water of the Spirit. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard 
largely because I think for two reasons. One, we're Americans, and two, we are Nebraskans. And as Nebraskans, we have a kind of can-do, frontier, pioneer attitude that says, you know, uh, if I'm going to go from strength to strength, then by golly, I'll just suck it up and do it. I'll handle it myself. And so when we are confronted with particular issues, when we are confronted with challenges or opportunities or whatever sort of a positive self-speak you want to use when things hit the fan in your life and you're trying to figure out which way is up, oftentimes I fear our first response is to go, okay, what do I need to do to address this? What do I need to do to fix it? What do I need to do, maybe if I can't fix it, what do I need to do to just make it go away? Well, the psalmist here calls us to understand that our first move, our first cry, our first thought should not be to self. It should be inward if you're a Christian, but not inward to self. Rather, we're called to find our strength in the living water of God's Spirit. It is He who will lead us in all truth, Jesus tells us. It is He who will strengthen us. It is He who prays for us in groanings too deep for words and we don't even know how to pray. Let's find our strength in the living water of the Spirit. Thirdly and finally, we need to trust in the Anointed One. We need to trust in the anointed one. I love the benediction in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now we know from our time in the Sermon on the Mount that being blessed and being happy are not one and the same. But rather blessedness refers to this idea of shalom, that all is right with God, and because all is right with God, the other relationships that are in my world and in my life, those relationships are rightly prioritized, so even if they're not as they should be, they are at least in the right place. So how do we get there? The psalmist cries out, verse 8, God, I need you to hear my prayer. Look at our shield. Who's the shield? Look on the face of your anointed. Now, this is a problematic statement. It's a problematic statement because if the anointed in this instance, in verse 9 of Psalm 84, if the anointed is the king, the king of Israel or the king of Judah, that's a mixed bag to say the least. There has to be another anointed. There has to be someone else that the psalmist can say, God, I need you to hear our prayer because my shield is the face of your anointed. Even if it's David, that's no guarantee that this is going to go well. But if the anointed is Jesus, then we can get to verse 10 and we understand this idea of blessedness and this idea that all of my relationships and my priorities, they're at least in the right order. The psalmist beginning in verse 10 tells us what those 
rightly prioritized relationships look like a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Friends, the psalmist understands that he must trust in God's anointed one. He cannot say, O Lord, behold our shield, look on my face. Look on the face of your people. No, he says, look on the face of your anointed. He's calling us to trust. He's calling us to place our trust in God's anointed one. Namely, he's calling us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you. It's pretty easy to say, oh yeah, I did. So here's what happened in a Mexican restaurant in Waterloo, Nebraska in 1987. Actually, 1988. There I trusted in God's anointed one. But it's not a one-time thing, is it? It's a continual thing. It's a perpetual thing. Because the allure to dwell in the tents of wickedness is not a one-time thing. The allure... To spend my days somewhere other than in the courts of my God is never ending. And so we could say under Roman numeral number three in your outline on that third point, trust and keep trusting. Don't stop. Understand that your shield is not your good conduct, not your good behavior, not your not the fervor of your feelings towards God, but your shield is, and your only hope is that God would look at the face of his anointed one, not yours. Trust in God's anointed one. There are hints and echoes of Psalm 84 in the table that we're going to partake of in just a minute. The anointed one did die to atone for our sin. We call this a table. We don't call it an altar. We're not re-offering uh, Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. But we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. And it's only by the work of the Spirit that we can lay hold of the work that Jesus did on our behalf. We need to find our strength in the Spirit. We need the Spirit to apply to us the blessings and benefits of the Lord Jesus as we come to his table this morning. And friends, the table reminds us, not in our own doing, not in our own words, but in the table, God himself is reminding us, if you're my 
child, you are rightly related to me. I'm your God, and you are my people. Let's pray. Father, I'm certain this morning that uh, there are those of us who are here who, uh, when we stop long enough, are forced to say, I am not where I want to be. So we pray for the work of your Spirit, who we're told graciously convicts us of our sin. We pray that we would trust not in our own wisdom, but that rather we would dwell near the altar, that we would, we would look to the Lord Jesus Father, we thank you for the declaration that your table makes. You are our God, and we are your people. Full stop. We know that it's possible only because of the atoning death of your Son. And we give you thanks and praise that you loved the world so much that you sent him to die. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would indeed use the table, that you would strengthen us for the living of these days. Lord, this, this morning in Sunday school, we were reminded we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we ask for the nourishment and the encouragement that come from spiritually partaking of the Lord Jesus at his table this morning. For we pray this in his name. Amen.